Well, guys, once again, uh, good morning. And um, if you have your Bibles with you, we are taking up Genesis 7 this morning. So if you would turn with me there. Genesis 7. As we have been doing, um, really for the sake of time, we'll we'll really just read the text as we are uh, making comments on it. So so keep that in front of you. Um, But as you have that in front of you, let me just remind you where we're at, um, why we're looking at the text um, and the divisions that we are this morning. So you remember that I had mentioned uh, last week that when we're looking at this text, we are looking at, of course, the broader section uh, that begins with the generations of, of Adam. So you begin there in Genesis 5. But in Genesis 5, you have that subsection, right? So immediately after the eighth verse of Genesis 6, you have that very familiar phrase, these are the generations of Noah. Now, as you look at this text, what you'll notice here is that this really functions as a subsection that belongs to the antediluvian period. Uh, the antediluvian period, I should have defined this last time, uh, it's before the flood, that's what it means literally. And so we are looking at the inspired historian uh, providing for us an account of how we're supposed to see both the period itself and also its conclusion. And as you look at this subsection that begins at chapter 6, verse 9, that subsection really continues all the way through the end of the ninth chapter. So when we're taking up Genesis 7, it's important to remind ourselves that the narrator is giving to us very clearly a picture of the end of an age, the end of a crucial age, of course. Um, And as we're looking at Genesis 7, it's also important for us to remember all that's gone before in chapter 6. As as the Lord has prepared us to look at the flood, he has first of all reminded us that there was one in that generation who was righteous, You remember that Noah is described very much like Job is described. And Job 1.1, also in Genesis 6.10, these two descriptors that Noah was perfect and upright belong to Job and his generation. They belong to others in Scripture. And here what we're looking at in Genesis 7 is how God is dealing with this one who was in his generation, one who sought the Lord, when the rest of the visible church at this time really had pursued a course of defection. So with that in mind, we take up Genesis 7. And as you have Genesis 7 in front of you, there are a couple of basic divisions that I want us to keep in mind before we, before we start into the text. So as you're looking at the first four verses, you'll notice here that you have a monologue. Here you have the Lord speaking directly to Noah. And those four verses, of course, are really reiterating all that has gone before, just with, of course, the addition that now the Lord has set the time. In seven days, the world will be destroyed. And then 5 to 24, so through the rest of the seventh chapter, you have the Lord providing for us a narration of how these things have come about. And it's it's a striking narrative, because as you look at this text, you'll notice that there is some repetition. You have the summary of what's to take place in verses 6 to 10. And then verses 11 to 24, you have something of an expanded form of what has taken place. And so you have summary and expansion in this narrative, and, and God willing, in the time to come, we'll, we'll see why that is. And then, of course, verses 11 and 12, in that expanded form, you have the record of the flood, verses 13 to 17, the preservation of life in the ark, and verses 18 to 24, um, what we'll call here the success 
of divine judgment. So that's really the outline of chapter 7. Uh, you have the two very basic divisions. You have monologue, verses 1 to 4, narrative, verses 5 to the end of the chapter. And so let's take, first of all, that first section that begins at chapter 1. Oh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 7. The word of God reads, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. I'll stop there, remind you that this is a reiteration of what you have, chapter 6, verse 9. Here you have Noah once again compared with his generation. This is a crucial aspect that I, I think we often overlook. The Lord is very mindful of how Noah has lived in light of a defecting age. He says in the very next verse, Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his his female. Uh, You'll notice here that for the very first time in all of Scripture, you have a division between clean and unclean animals. Um, If you will, just kind of hold on to that idea. Uh, That's something that we'll be revisiting at the end of our time. But I'll just note it here uh, for context's sake. He then goes on to tell us that of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, uh, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. And as you're looking at this text, what you notice here is that as far as the clean animals go, they are to be taken seven, which what you should see there is you have three pairs plus one. Three pairs plus one. Um, and that, that's going to be crucial for a couple of reasons. Uh, when you're looking at the clean beasts, these are, of course, going to be beasts that Noah will use copiously. Um, these are those especially that will be used, for instance, for diet after the, the vegetarian restriction is lifted. But why then the additional? Why do we have three pairs of clean beasts plus one? Um, I think when we're looking at this text, we should keep in mind um, that the sacrifices are things that, of course, Noah is quite familiar with. Um, And so most commentators look at that super-added animal here as really being a testimony that this is going to be an animal devoted to sacrifice. Remind you that it is the clean beast that would have seven of their kind on the ark, um, not just the two uh, that the unclean would possess. Then, as you come to the fourth verse, we're told thus, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And of course, this is a reiteration with the addition of the time change of everything that has been promised up to this point. Uh, You have in the beginning of chapter 6 the promise, the days of man, 120 years, Now we're told in this text that 120 years has come to its close. Now as we look at verses 5 to 24, we are coming to narrative. So the Lord has revealed these things to Noah. Now we come to the history itself. In verses 6 we begin with thus, he says, And Noah did according unto all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. Now, that means then for Noah, it was 100 years after he had had his last son. Um, So, uh, not necessarily 120 years uh, that we're looking at, but certainly 100 years since he was 
uh, since his last son was born. And then we're told, And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him into the ark, because of the waters of the flood. The word because there really could be translated in the face of. That would be the literal translation. The sense is, and this is something we're going to revisit here in just a line or two, what the narrator is striving to set before us is the very moment the flood waters come. Just before that moment, Noah and his family are brought into the ark. There is an immediacy, an element of, of, of almost instantaneous um, events, one following another that's in the text. Immediately before the flood waters come, Noah and his family and the beasts are in the ark. Of the clean beasts and of the beasts that are not clean, and of the fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark the male and the female, as God commanded Noah. Uh, i just remind you, this is probably not something that we have to dwell in too much, but uh, higher critical scholars look at this and they say, well, here don't you have a contradiction between what the Lord has said in verses 1 to 4. And what they're pointing out, of course, is that here the animals go in two by two, um, uh, well, how can you reconcile that with the sevens uh, that are supposed to be going into the ark as well? And obviously, the answer to that even lies back in the explanation that I just briefly gave. Uh, when we're looking at that number seven, you should be thinking of three pairs plus one. And so all that our text is really emphasizing is the idea that they have gone in in pairs, um, without mentioning, of course, the superadded animal uh, for sacrifice. And it came to pass... After seven days, the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Words there, upon the earth, could simply be translated, came upon um, the earth. Now, when we look at verses 6 to 10, this is a summary. Everything that the Lord has promised that would come upon the earth, and everything that he had promised to Noah with regard to the beasts, and with regard to himself and his family, has come to pass. This is something that history sets before us very pointedly. But when we look at verses 11 to 24, we have, as I've already said, an expanded form of that. And as you're looking at this expanded form, it's so, so very crucial that we're mindful of what is emphasized here that was left out in the summary that's gone before. Those points of emphasis are crucial. Um, you know this is something that um, in many ways is, is, a, is a focus of mine, um, emphasizing what the text emphasizes. Well, how do we learn what the text is emphasizing? Well, one of the ways we do that in a text like this is by seeing those points of uniqueness in its expanded form that are not included in the summary. So that's how I want us to look at these next several verses. So, so take verse 11, first of all. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now, I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, but I think it's worthwhile mentioning this. In terms of emphasis, what do we have here that we did not have before? Well, is, is it not that striking phrase that here all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open? That really is the unique aspect in this expanded form. And why might that be emphasized? Uh, what about this phrase that we encounter really for the first time in chapter 7, 
what about it is so significant that, that the reader needs to, needs to take this on and see, see that it is emphasized? I want you to kind of keep that question in front of you um, as we work through this text. And again, the writer tells us, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verses 13 to 17 give us now something of a transition. We're looking at the flood, if you will. You're supposed to have in your mind's eye this idea that the rain has fallen upon all the earth. That's the first scene. The second scene takes us inside the ark. So the narrator has described for us all that has befallen the world. Now he takes us within the ark, and here's what he says. In the selfsame day, now this is a striking phrase, in the original It's almost unintelligible to us English speakers. In the original, you translate it literally in the bones of the day. And you wonder, what on earth does that mean? Well, the idea there is is that there's a a sense of immediacy. Um, You could translate it in the substance of the day. The idea is, as I've said before, that it was just before, just before the waters came upon the earth, that Noah and his family and the beasts are in the ark. Um, That's really the point of emphasis that the narrator continues to take us back to. In the selfsame day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons unto them, into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort, And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I'll stop there just briefly. Um, This is a point of emphasis that I don't think we uh, will find often given in our children's books about the flood. Uh, Who shuts the door in this account? Um, It is the Lord Jehovah. That's a crucial element that the narrator would not leave out um, as he writes under inspiration. And uh, I think that's crucial for us to remember as well. Um, Not only are the beasts brought in, um, very similarly to how all the beasts were brought before Adam in uh, Genesis 3, they were brought in by God's direct power. Um, So also was Noah and his family brought into the ark, kept safe in the ark by a direct act of the Lord. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift above the earth. Now, the word Eretz here, that's the word earth, we've encountered that already in chapter 6, and, and we've actually seen that that's a word that's really often repeated. And one of the ways that we can look at that repetition is seeing that the narrator here is really stressing that the earth has become, has become corrupt, and in its corruption has become a, really a stage of divine judgment. So when we look at this text, literally, we should of course be thinking that the ark is raised above the ground. It was not sunk like the rest of mankind and the rest of the, of the beasts of the field. But there is a striking thing, isn't it? That here the narrator is describing the ark as being lifted above that stage of judgment. He's really telling us, isn't he, that here these ones have escaped that wrath that now has come upon all the face of the earth. It's a striking way to say that they survived, isn't it? That would have been sufficient of itself. 
But here he's telling us, really, they have been lifted above that stage of judgment. Then we come to verses 18 to 24 and conclude the text here. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. That's a reiteration, of course, of what we just said. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle, and of beasts, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. Um, This is a crucial point uh, that I think we shouldn't really overlook. Um, Here the narrator provides for us a definition of all that's gone before. When we read in this text that phrase, all that had the breath of life within them, or some variation of it, uh, the narrator describes for us what he means. It's all of those that were in the dry land. So, um, of course, the unbelieving world says, well, how could, how could Noah have built aquariums and so forth? Well, he didn't need to build aquariums in the context of a flood. Um, really, the judgment was to come upon all of those that were land-dwelling um, creatures that drew breath. So that would mean, of course, man and uh, the beasts of the land. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in hundred and fifty days. Now friends, this is a very familiar text to us. Um, and, and obviously this is one of those uh, passages that is well known um, by really even the youngest among us, and even outside the church. When we look at this text, our question should be, you know, not only as we're looking at this text, what is the history that's communicated, but what is it in that history that the divine author is emphasizing? What is it about this account, not only its historicity, but even the way in which it's communicated to us that we should pay mind to? So I want you to notice just a few points of emphasis that are clear in the text. Take, take first of all what you have told to us about Noah. We're told here in the fifth verse of Genesis 7, he was a man who simply obeyed the Lord. Now, what's striking is all the details that we don't have uh, with regard to Noah. Uh, we don't have any, any record of his own speech to the Lord. It's a striking thing, isn't it? Uh, we have no record of his own affections uh, as, as they're contemplating it. All that the Lord has revealed to him. All that we're told. All that we're told is that he was a man who obeyed the Lord. It's actually something that you find emphasized in 6.22 and in 7.5 both. And why might that be emphasized? Why is it that this kind of almost uh, implicit obedience is set before us time and time again? Well, folks, this is a man who's very unlike the generation in which he lives. And the narrator is showing us in a very concrete way how different the man is. They have corrupted their way. We saw that in Genesis 6. This is a man who, when the Lord speaks, he does. And we can't miss that. We can't miss that at all. But if, if Noah's obedience is emphasized, there's also an aspect here that we can't miss either. The idea of destruction and even the idea of divine repentance that we saw in chapter 6. 
Uh, what I'm referring there to there is the text, Genesis 6, verse 6. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And strikingly, and it grieved him at his heart. And so what does the Lord do? He destroys all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land. Died. And when you think about that, what you have here is a real connection then, don't you? As the narrator provides for us, God's settled disposition against sin and, and even uses those anthropomorphic language and, and anthropopathic uh, phrases in Genesis 6. He really prepares us to see that the Lord is now going to cleanse the earth of those who have offended him so grievously. What's striking is, when you look at this text, and I, I, I even mentioned it when we looked at Genesis 6, when you look at this text, you and I should be seeing, in many ways, a reversal. A reversal of what you have, for instance, in Genesis 1 in the ninth verse. We're told, I remember I emphasized this in verse 11 of our text, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Why, why is that so significant? Why is that given to us in the text? Why is simply not say that there was a flood? Well, does that not take you back to Genesis 1? Doesn't it take you back to Genesis 1 and the ninth verse? When you come to the third day of creation, which is given to us in that text, note how the narrator sets these things before us. He tells us that on that third day, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth, which is Eretz, that's the word that we've been encountering time and again, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. What you see here then in the flood, strikingly, is that as the Lord, as the text says, repented that he had ever made man, now he removes the man by actually undoing, as it were, that third day of creation, removing from him a stage upon which to live. It's a striking thing, um, and, and it's something that we sure, certainly should not forget. But there's also another aspect that is emphasized in the text, and this is a bit more subtle, but it but certainly, certainly clear once we see it. If you look at verses 11 and 12, what is set before us? Well, what's in front of us, of course, is a record of destruction. In this part of the narrative, here the historian sets before us the reality that the flood was successful. It was destructive. Death is primarily what's communicated in verses 11 and 12. But then come to verses 13 to 17. As I said to you before, you have this moment where where our focus is at first on the world as it's under the deluge. But then as you move into these verses, 13 to 17, we move into the ark. And there we find preservation. We move from that theme of death and destruction and come into that theme of salvation. But then the narrator takes us, as we come to the end of chapter 7, back to the success of divine judgment, the total destruction of all of those outside of the ark. And then if you look ahead, just down to the eighth verse, sorry, the eighth chapter, the first verse, we find a return to the ark, a return to that theme of preservation and salvation. Now this morning you're going to think that my theme um, throughout the day is contrast, um, but, uh, but 
I think it is a contrast we should be mindful of, especially in this text. You have time and again the focus shifting at once on the destruction that ensues upon those who are under the curse of God and at the selfsame time the salvation enjoyed by those who have found his favor. We should be mindful of that contrast. And that should preach to us. But I'll get back to that in just a moment's time. So as you look at this, those being kind of the literary themes that are in front of us in the text, what of that question, what of the clean and the unclean beasts? We know, of course, um, the book of Leviticus is several hundred years away from its being written. So, so how can we make sense of the fact that already in our text, Genesis 7, we have mention of clean and unclean animals? And, of course, the higher critics have a field day with this, and they tell us that this is obviously an anachronism. Um, the, the redactor has obviously corrupted the original text, and we have to simply uh, outright condemn such an interpretation. Um, there are two ways to look at this that are, that are quite, um, quite reasonable. The first is when you look at the idea of clean and unclean, the clean beasts that Noah would know were those that would be most useful and are still most useful to men today. Right? So when you look at that, the idea is very, very clear in front of us that, that these are beasts that are going to be quite useful to man, especially as he leaves the ark. There's a second way, too, that I don't think we can miss either. Um, John Gill, I think, very hopefully looks at this, and he says, well, as you look at the, the reality that the sacrificial system was already well in place before we get to the flood, he, and I think rightfully so, sees that the antediluvian saints would see certain animals uh, that would reflect man's sinful condition. Uh, not that they themselves were inherently sinful or inherently unclean, but that they stood really as a token for sin. And then there were clean beasts. And it would be the clean beasts, of course, that they would be, they would be those offered to the Lord in sacrifice. Um, so as we're looking at this text, those are two ways that I think quite clearly can explain for us why we're already encountering this idea of some division between animals. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind um, that the scriptures here are setting before us uh, what is necessary for us to know for salvation and for worship. Um, we don't know. Um, the book of Job, I think, is helpful. Um, but even the book of Job doesn't take us to the antediluvian period that, that often prior to the inscripturation of the word of God, God spoke quite directly and quite often to those who were faithful. Uh, just direct you to the book of Job, how the Lord dealt individually with those men. Um, those men describe for us in great detail how the Lord without the inspired scriptures, would still speak to his own. And so there's no reason even to preclude that uh, when we're looking at a text such as this. So as we close, just a few thoughts for application. So, beloved, as we look at this text, and and we see that contrast that I've highlighted already, uh, that there were those, of course, who were under the curse of God, and then there were those who were saved and that we are constantly really taken from one to the other, our, our focus always drifting either to those under the wrath of God or those who are preserved by his grace. Uh, you see here powerfully that even as all things that seemed at once to be stable are put into a state of convulsion, the Lord still knows how to deliver his own. I think that's an aspect that we should not 
we should not forget. As the narrator takes us back to the ark, what is one practical application that comes to us? The Lord is able to save his own, even when the rest of the world is plunged into chaos. In some ways, I think as you look at the flood, you should be thinking of Psalm 46. All things that seemed once stable are in a state of convulsion, and yet the Lord has preserved his own. And beloved, even when the Christian walks into times of great life and times of life that are in great turmoil, Beloved, you remember, uh, he was able to save Noah, literally, when the rest of the world was in a deluge. He can spare his own in any, in any providence. But secondly, of course, the question is uh, one of examination. If the Lord emphasizes the fact that Noah is distinct from his generation, and we saw the various ways that the Lord emphasizes that in our text, do we contemplate ourselves? Do we contemplate ourselves, our relation to our current generation? Do we think uh, about those questions? How am I partaking in the generation's defection? Those are the kinds of questions we should ask because God certainly in this text shows us that he takes mind of those kinds of questions. God asks, as it were, where are you? in light of your present generation. And certainly for our own examination, those are questions we should be posing ourselves. But a final exhortation is actually driven really not from Genesis 7 itself, but the use of Genesis 7 um, by the Apostle Peter. You probably know the text quite well. It's taken from 2 Peter 3. You remember the Apostle in that context is dealing with those who have forsaken the church. And they've forsaken the church because they assume that because Christ has not come immediately after his ascension, that the Lord simply is not going to return. And you see then, as the apostle narrates their apostasy, this creates in them such hatred for the gospel that they become persecutors of the church. I want you to notice how the apostle deals with these apostates. He quotes them, verse 4, of 2 Peter 3, saying thus, he says, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And then he explains, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You see how the narrator takes us, not the narrator, but the apostle takes us back to the narration that we've been considering this morning, Genesis 7. You see there that there the ungodly lot continued in their iniquity. And what the apostle is saying is just as surely, just as surely as the Lord put an end to their sin on this earth with judgment, so surely will he come again and with fire renovate the earth. How, how can you and I think about that? The, the scientists 
who uh, talk a lot about geology and geological history remind us, and increasingly more and more so, uh, that there must have been a global flood. And this, of course, doesn't surprise us. But the idea there is, is that all that we see around us has been marked by this flood. Really, the forms that we see, the rock formations, the mountains, the hills, the plains, all of those things, uh, most geologists will trace back to a deluge. That means, then, that every one of those things that we see in the landscape really should remind us that there was a time when the Lord really and concretely came with judgment upon sinners. When you and I are here, you and I should be thinking that at one point in time, the ground upon which I stand was 40 feet at least, at least beneath the surface, under divine wrath. And just as surely as those things are, so surely is coming a final judgment. So surely is coming that world that will be renovated by fire. And so, beloved, as we look at this text, I don't think we can miss that. Everything is touched by the kind of judgment that we see in our text, but as the Apostle Peter reminds us, that should cause our minds to look forward to the coming judgment, its reality and its pervasiveness. And of course, if we do so as believers, that only increases for us or in us thanksgiving for Jesus Christ, who saved us from the wrath. Well, let's, let's close in prayer. Let's stand to pray. Our gracious and our eternal God, we come before you thankful that you are a God who has given to us your word. Father, we thank you that this is an inerrant and an infallible word. We thank you that it is a word that we can entrust ourselves to without fear of deception, and that it is a word that sets before us without any error those truths that are necessary for life, for salvation, for a right understanding of God and his works. Lord, we ask that you would make us attentive to this word. We pray that we would be those who meditate deeply, even on those texts that are most familiar to us, and that from them we would see how they point us to our need for Christ, and even in them, Reveal to us that saving grace, that divine love, that in your mercy has saved even sinners such as we. Father, we pray that you'd be gracious to us now. Lord, especially as we approach the worship to take place this morning. Father, we ask that you would go before us in all things. That, Lord, as we, as we prepare our hearts, we would do so by fixing our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray then that you be with us now for his sake, as we ask all things in Jesus' blessing. Amen.